0: Chicken on a Stick presents Persistence of Vision The second Academy Awards, presented by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, was hosted by William C. DeMille, who served as the second president of the Academy. The ceremony honored films released between August 1, 1928 and July 31, 1929. It took place on April 3rd, 1930, at the Coconut Grove of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. It was the first Academy Award Ceremony broadcast on radio by the local station KNX Los Angeles. 300 Academy members and their guests attended the ceremony. The second ceremony included a number of changes from the first. It was the first presentation for which the winners were not announced in advance, and the number of award categories was reduced from 12 to 7. The awards for Best Director, Comedy Picture, and Best Director, Dramatic Picture were merged into a single Best Director award. The awards for Best Writing, Adaptation, and Best Writing, Original Story were merged into a single Best Writing award. These would later split again for the fourth awards. The awards for Best Engineering Effects, Best Unique Artistic Production, and Best Writing, Title Writing were discontinued. It is unique in being the only occasion where there were no official nominees. Research by the AMPAS resulted in a list of unofficial nominees based on the records of which films were evaluated by the judges. We are back to take a look at the films nominated for Best Picture at the Second Academy Awards, which has increased to five films this year. Before we do, though, there are a few little extra facts that don't have anything to do with the five films we'll be talking about. Jean Eagles became the first and to date the only actress to be posthumously nominated for Best Actress, for The Letter. The Divine Lady became the last film to win Best Director without receiving a Best Picture nomination. Mary Pickford, a founding member of the AMPAS and married to its first president, lobbied to be considered for the Best Actress Award, inviting the judges over for tea at her home while the other actresses being considered for the same awards were not even aware of their status, which sounds like a little bit of cheating to me. This year's ceremony is also the only year in which no film won more than one Oscar. The five movies nominated this year for Best Outstanding Picture are The Broadway Melody, Alibi, The Hollywood Review of 1929, In Old Arizona, and The Patriot. The Patriot and In Old Arizona have five nominations, tied for the record for the most nominations set by 7th Heaven in the previous year. The Broadway Melody and Alibi have three nominations, and The Hollywood Review of 1929 only have the one. Let's start with The Patriot. The Patriot was a 1928 semi-biographical film directed by Ernst Lubitsch, released by Paramount Pictures. Starring Emile Jennings, the film tells the story of Emperor Paul I of Russia. The film was wrote by Hans Crowley. It was an adaptation of two plays, Paul I by Dmitry Marishkovsky and The Patriot by Ashley Dukes. Dukes' play was based on a novel, The Patriot, by Alfred Newman. There's not much to speak about with this film, It is the only Best Picture Academy Award nominee for which no complete or near-complete copy has been found. Only pieces of the film, including the trailers, are left. The UCLA Film and Television Archives is in possession of 2,500 feet of footage out of 10,000. With that said, I did watch the trailers, and it looked to have a lot of promise. As far as the plot goes, here's a summary of what happens. In 18th century Russia, the Tsar, Paul, is surrounded by murderous plots and trusts only Count Fallen. Fallen wishes to protect his friend, the Mad King, but because of the horror of the king's acts, he feels he must remove him from the throne. Stefan, whipped by the Tsar for not having the correct number of buttons on his gaiters, wishes to join the count in the plot. The crown prince is horrified by their plans and warns his father, who, having no love for his son, places him under arrest for his foolish accusations. Fallen uses his mistress, Countess Osterman, to lure the Tsar into the bedroom where she tells him the plot. The Tsar summons Fallen, who reassures him of his loyalty. Later that night, the Count and Stefan enter his bedroom, and presently the Tsar is dead. But moments later, Stefan turns the pistol on Fallen. As the Count lies dying on the floor, the Countess appears and embraces Fallen as he says, I have been a bad friend and lover, but I have been a patriot. This will be the only time we run into this issue moving forward, as no other nominees are lost like this one. Check out the trailer on YouTube, though. It is pretty hype about itself. Next, we will talk about Alibi. Alibi is a 1929 pre-code crime film. Some quick history here as we're going to hear the term pre-code mentioned quite a few times down the road. Pre-code Hollywood, 1927 to 1934, was a brief era in American film industry between the widespread adoption of sound and film in 1929 and the enforcement of the Motion Picture Production Code Censorship Guidelines, popularly known as the Hays Code, in mid-1934. Although the code was adopted in 1930, oversight was poor, and it did not become rigorously enforced until July 1, 1934, with the establishment of the Production Code Administration. Before that date, film content was restricted more by local laws, negotiations between the Studio Relations Committee and the major studios, and popular opinion, than by the strict adherence to the Hayes Code, which was often ignored by Hollywood filmmakers. Alibi is directed by Roland West. Screenplay written by West and C. Gardner Sullivan, who adopted the 1927 Broadway stage play Nightstick. Written by Elaine Stern Carrington, J.C. Nugent, Elliot Nugent, and John Ray. The movie stars Chester Morris, Harry Stubbs, May Bush, and Regis Toomey. Chester Morris was the first nominee for Best Actor Born in the 20th Century, having been born February 16, 1901. The film was nominated for three awards, Outstanding Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, and Best Art Direction. The story goes as follows. Joan Manning, the daughter of Police Sergeant Pete Manning, secretly marries Chick Williams, a gang leader who convinces her that he is now leading an honest life. Chick attends the theater with Joan and, at the intermission, sneaks away to commit a robbery, during which a police officer gets killed. Chick is suspected of the crime, but is able to use Joan and the theater as his alibi. The police plant Danny McGann, an undercover agent, in Chick's gang. He mostly just acts like he's drunk the entire time so that nobody seems suspicious of him. But he is discovered and Chick ends up killing him chick is later cornered by the police in his own home before they can arrest him he flips the light switch off plunging the room into darkness in the midst of the chaos chick manages to escape to the roof he attempts to jump to a building nearby but stumbles on the landing and then falls to his death alibi didn't win any of the awards it was nominated for i personally wouldn't have even nominated it for anything while the movie does include sound, and I understand at the time that likely went a long way for how movies were received, the film just doesn't do anything special. There's no real attempt to make the audience bind to Chick being innocent. We see him flip-flop regularly throughout the film from trying to be a nice guy on the up-and-up to just being a pretty awful person, and even a coward towards the end. I will say I enjoyed the ending of the film, as it got pretty silly involving shooting Chick with blanks but him still laying on the floor for an extended amount of time acting like he was dead, though the officer knew that he wasn't, to laughably bad edit at the very end of the film when he falls off the roof. It's a cut that changes from a person to clearly some sort of doll that they just kind of tossed off of a roof or something. I know they were limited in 1929, but it's still hilarious to watch it now. As dumb and funny as I found the ending, I don't think this movie really does anything that amazing, and it honestly kind of drags on at times it does feel like it's caught in this weird position between silent films and adding sound because there are the strange pauses that feels like maybe there would have been a title card placed here or something throughout and this movie doesn't even live up to what the racket nominated in the previous year was able to do with a similar story about you know cops and gangsters but that was a silent picture and i actually really enjoyed that much more than i did this one The movie, also similarly to The Racket, was banned in Chicago at the time for immorality, criminality, and depravity. The Hollywood Review of 1929 is a 1929 American pre-code musical comedy film released by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. It was the studio's second feature-length musical and one of their earliest sound films. Directed by Charles Resner, it features nearly all of MGM's stars in a two-hour review that includes three segments in Technicolor. The masters of ceremonies are Conrad Nagel and Jack Benny. A review is a type of multi-act popular theatrical entertainment that combines music, dance, and sketches. The review has its roots in 19th century popular entertainment and melodrama, but grew into substantial cultural presence in its own during the golden years from 1916 to 1932 this is a little bit of a strange one as it's not a movie in the basic sense it's basically just a recording of a stage production with multiple acts and in those acts a lot of different segments going on which is really hit or miss however it has a lot of interesting stuff inside it which might be worth looking at just for those specific parts as mentioned before this movie is packed to the brim with stars of MGM at the time A very young Joan Crawford, Buster Keaton, Laurel and Hardy, just to name a few of the larger names you might recognize. It also includes the debut of the song Singing in the Rain. That's right, the song made popular by the 1952 film of the same name, starring Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, and Debbie Reynolds. So that's a fun little piece of movie trivia that you can pull out to impress all of your friends with. There's also all over the runtime of this movie, from the opening, to a full segment of singing the song, to ending the movie, with the whole cast of famous actors singing the song together. Early on in the film, we get Joan Crawford doing a singing and dancing number that really stands out. She'd later remark that Review was one of those, let's throw everyone on the lot into a musical things, but I did a good song and dance number. And that about sums up what this movie is. It really is a let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. As well, Laurel and Hardy have a good small segment that's pretty comedic about them being fumbling magicians, and lastly, the segment in Technicolor, where we are seeing a production of Romeo and Juliet being done, with the director of the segment being Lionel Barrymore, a relative to Drew Barrymore. The segment is fun, as they decide to do Romeo and Juliet, but in modern times, which again is 1929, so the language is of their time, and it's pretty funny and gets a couple laughs out of me. Overall, this is not worth the time to watch, but there are pieces that were pretty fun. It was nominated for only one award, which was The Outstanding Picture, and it did not win. So if you want to check it out, I just highly suggest watching some of the segments, like Joan Crawford's number, Laurel and Hardy, The Singing of the Rain bits, and that's pretty much it. Our fourth film to look at is In Old Arizona. A 1928 American pre-code western film directed by Raoul Walsh and Irving Cummings. The film was based on the character of Cisco Kidd in the 1907 story The Caballero's Way by O. Henry. It was a major innovation in Hollywood as well. It was the first major western to use new technology of sound and the first talkie to be filmed outdoors. It made extensive use of authentic locations as well, filming in Bryce Canyon National Park and Zion National Park in Utah, in Mission San Juan Capistrano, and the Mojave Desert in California. Starring Warner Baxter, who would win Best Actor at this year's ceremonies, was also nominated for Best Director, Best Writing, Best Cinematography, and Outstanding Picture. As for the film itself, here's a rundown. A bandit known as the Cisco Kid robs a stagecoach. Words of his deeds reach Sergeant Mickey Dunn, who is tasked by his superiors with bringing him in, dead or alive, with a $5,000 reward promised once he succeeds. The Cisco Kid goes to a local barbershop and gets a trim and takes a bath with his new riches. While there, Dunn shows up, though Dunn is unaware of the Cisco Kid's true identity and passes him off as a friendly civilian. When he leaves, the local blacksmith tells him that that was the Cisco Kid. Kid is in a relationship with a woman named Tanya Maria, and visits her often. He loves her, but she has frequent affairs without his knowledge. Dunn and Maria meet each other and begin an affair. Dunn tells Maria that once he takes down Cisco Kid, he will give her the $5,000 reward, making her fall in love with him. They express their love for each other, and while the Cisco Kid secretly watches and listens nearby, learning of her betrayal. Maria writes a letter to Dunn, telling him to come that evening to take down Cisco Kid before he makes his escape. The Kid finds the letter and replaces it with his own fake letter from Maria. His letter says that he will be dressed up in Maria's clothes in an effort to disguise himself from Dunn, while Maria is actually riding away dressed up like Cisco Kid. Dunn receives the fake letter, believing it to be from Maria. When he sees Cisco Kid leaving her house, Dunn shoots the person dressed up like Maria, believing it to be Cisco Kid, but actually it was Maria. Now far away, Cisco Kid laments that flirting days are over. She can now finally settle down. He then makes his escape. Edmund Lowe plays Dunn and Dorothy Burgess plays Maria. While I like the cast as a whole, I think they all did well, the movie just isn't that interesting at the end of the day. Where it should be a cat and mouse game, it devolves into mostly Tanya and Maria being a terrible person. As well though technically it is impressive that the film was able to film outside and also on location it's a mess in how it actually turned out. A lot of the scenes outside with a lot of people and things going on are extremely hard to understand and just sort of sound like a mess. Again this is In Easy Pass, there isn't much to really make it a recommendation unless you really want to see the first major talking western, though I don't think that's enough to make you actually want to seek this movie out. I did enjoy Werner Baxter as the Cisco Kid, though, so good on him for winning the Best Actor award. And finally, we have The Broadway Melody. The Broadway Melody is a 1929 American pre-code musical film and the first sound film to win Academy Award for Best Picture. It was one of the early musicals to feature a technicolor sequence, which sparked the trend of color being used in a flurry of musicals that would hit the screens in 1929 and 1930. Today, the tele- Technicolor sequence survives only in black and white. The film was the first musical released by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and was Hollywood's first all-talking musical. Directed by Harry Beaumont, written by Norman Houston and James Gleason from a story by Edmund Golding, the original music was written by Arthur Freed and Nacio Herb Brown. Eddie Kearns sings the Broadway melody and tells some choir girls that he has brought the Mahoney sisters act to New York to perform it with him in the latest review being produced by Frances Zeinfeld. Harriet Hank Mahoney and her sister Queenie Mahoney are awaiting Eddie's arrival at their apartment. Hank, the older sister, prides herself on her business sense and talent while Queenie is lauded for her beauty. Hank is confident that they will make it big, while Queenie is less eager to put everything on the line to become a star. Hank declines the offer from their uncle Jed to join a 30-week traveling show, but consents to think it over. Eddie, who is engaged to Hank, arrives to see Queenie for the first time since she was a girl and is instantly taken with her. He tells them to come to the rehearsal for Seinfeld's review and present their act. Seinfeld isn't interested in it, but says that he might have use for Queenie, who begs him to take Hank as part of it as well, saying they will both work for a single wage. She also convinces him to pretend that Hank's business skills won him over. Eddie witnesses this exchange and becomes even more enamored of Queenie for her devotion to her sister. During a dress rehearsal for the review, Seinfeld says that the pacing of it is too slow for Broadway Melody and cuts Hank and Queenie from the number. During this another woman gets injured after falling off of a prop and Queenie is selected to replace her. Nearly everyone is captivated by Queenie, particularly notorious playboy Jacques Warner. While Jacques begins to woo Queenie, Hank is upset that Queenie is building her success on her looks rather than her talent. Over the following weeks, Queenie spends a lot of time with Jacques, which Hank and Eddie fervently disapprove of, forbidding her to see him, which results in Queenie pushing them away and ruining the relationship between the sisters. Queenie is only with Jacques to fight her growing feelings for Eddie, but Hank thinks she's setting herself up to be hurt. Eventually, Eddie and Queenie confess their love for each other, but Queenie, unwilling to break her sister's heart, runs off with Jacques again. After witnessing Queenie's fierce outburst towards Eddie and his devastated reaction to it, Hank finally realizes that they are in love. She berates Eddie for letting Queenie run away and tells him to go after her. Hank claims that she never loved him to begin with and was only using him to advance her career. After he leaves, Hank breaks down. She later composes herself and calls Uncle Jed to accept the job with the 30-week show. There's a party at the apartment Jacques recently purchased for Queenie, but he insists they spend time alone. When she resists his advances, he says it's the least she could do after everything he's done for her. He begins to get physical, but Eddie bursts in in an attempt to fight Jacques, who knocks him through the door with a single punch, which is absolutely hilarious looking, by the way. Queenie runs to Eddie and leaves Jacques and the party behind. Sometime later, Hank Uncle Jed await the return of Queenie and Eddie from their honeymoon. The relationship between the sisters is on the mend, but there is obvious discomfort between Hank and Eddie. Queenie announces she's through with show business and will settle in their new house on Long Island. She insists that Hank live with them when her job is over. After Hank leaves with her new partner and Uncle Jed, Queenie laments that she couldn't help her sister find the happiness she deserves. Ironically, Hank's new partner is the blonde who tried to sabotage the act when the sisters first arrived in New York. The final scene shows Hank, on her way to the train station, she promises her new partner that they will be back on Broadway within six months. Anita Page and Betsy Love I really did enjoy in this movie, and I think they really carry it, which is great when they're the leads. Charles King as Eddie Kearns became pretty annoying pretty quickly. For being a musical as well, it is pretty lacking in the song department. We hear Broadway melody three or four times throughout the whole thing, and a few other songs, but nothing memorable or all that catchy. Since this was one of the early sound features and musicals, the production learned how to record by trial and error. Sets were changed to improve the recording qualities, which is great because as we saw in old Arizona, the sound could be jumbled mess if not careful. A silent version was produced as well because many theaters still did not have sound equipment at the time. This does seem to make a lot of sense when watching the movie, as it's still set up in a similar way to silent films I've seen. The movie is kind of broke up into segments with title cards in between them. The Broadway Melody went on to be the top-grossing movie of 1929 and to win Outstanding Picture that year at the Academy Awards. It became the second of seven films to win Best Picture without a writing nomination, similar to Wings from the year before, and the first of three movies to win Best Picture and Nothing Else. And those are the five movies that were nominated that year for the Oscar of Best Picture. Was The Broadway Melody the correct pick to win at all? Out of the pack, I would say yes, though with an asterisk, as it's impossible to fairly judge this year since we don't have access to The Patriot. This really did feel like a sophomore slump. I don't think any of the movies are necessarily bad, but they're not great either. The storytelling felt like it was a step backwards while all of the technology was advancing forwards. If you compare this year's nominees to the year before, we had three movies the year before, and I thought that Wings and The Racket were both good, fun, and impressive for their time, though I didn't like 7th Heaven. Here, with five of these nominees, one we couldn't watch, the four that we could just aren't that impressive or memorable, so it's not really worth recommending checking any of them out. Next time, we will look at the third Academy Awards from 1931, where there were five movies nominated, and easily the most well-known winner out of the lot that we've viewed so far. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.